Hey everyone, Andrew here. My apologies in getting this episode out a little late. I'm in the midst of fellowship interviews, and consequently, my life has become a little more hectic than usual. But it's worth the wait. So today, today's episode is a really great discussion with uh, Dr. Bach. Um, you may remember Dr. Bach from the debate on the Orbiter trial that we had with with him and Dr. Brown. Dr. Bach, as I've introduced before, he's the director of our CCU, and really he's uh, probably one of the better clinician educators that I've encountered. Uh, he really knows his stuff. He, he's also the director of the Center for Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy uh, here at Washington University in St. Louis. So I wanted to speak with him about that disease in particular, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or people call it hokum for short. Uh, I found it super informative. He's really engaging. Um, references the literature a lot. I think we have a really good discussion. In fact, the conversation was just so I, you know, easy to follow and easy to understand that I didn't do too much editing to it. So we'll just jump right into it. Um, also, I should make the plea that uh, if you like what you hear, do me a favor and go to iTunes and click on the little stars and give me a few stars if you'd like it. And uh, tell your friends and family, and and thanks for listening. Let's get started. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. All right, very good. So, um... Thank you, Dr. Bach, for coming to meet with me today. You are, in regards to this discussion today, we're going to be talking about uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So uh, can you just tell me your name and your title in regards to, uh, into this topic? Uh, I'm Richard Bach. I'm a professor of medicine here at uh, Washington University in the Department of Medicine, and I direct our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center, um, which we've had here for the last um, somewhere between 10 and 15 years or so. Okay, very good. To start our discussion, I'd like to start with a case. Uh, this is actually a, a personal friend of mine. Uh, she's about 28 years old, and actually it was about a year ago, uh, her father passed away from heart failure, and he had passed away from the cause of his heart failure being hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And one of her questions was that she had never undergone screening at uh, 28 years old. I think her father passed away around in his late 50s. Around like 56 or 58 in there. And one of her questions about whether she should be screened for it and at what age um, and the kind of symptoms that may develop or <clears throat> and how that gets diagnosed. So maybe just as a, a segue from then, for a internist every day in their clinic, what are the triggers that then should have someone suspect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Yeah. Well, you know, with that specific example... And I see uh, individuals not unlike your friends, um, that they have had a family member diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, that kind of tragic um, example where a family member has died and the diagnosis was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and they've never been screened, highlights one of the problems with sort of community um, approaches to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I think there needs to be awareness in the community particularly um, 
whether it's primary care or, or cardiology, uh, that all first-degree relatives of someone with a diagnosis deserve um, screening. Uh, that screening uh, requires a high-quality echocardiogram to look very carefully for signs of the phenotypic expression of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and an awareness that the genetics are not as straightforward as someone might might think. Um, uh, a family member, uh, a child of a affected person has a 50% chance of inheriting um, a, a gene for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and so um, it's not unlikely that family members may have uh, may carry the gene. Uh, the expression phenotype for the heart is something that it can appear at any time in life. And so some individuals have been screened at a younger age and thought they didn't have it, or they were told they didn't have it, when in fact it could develop later and they need regular screening, mm -hmm. uh, which is all defined in our guidelines. Um, so it's sad to me to hear that someone has had knowledge that a family member had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and had never been screened and they come to attention when a, a, a sad event like the death of a family member prompts their paying attention to it. But um, as far as, as awareness of when to look for the diagnosis, um, I'd first say that it's much more prevalent than even physicians are aware of, um, and certainly the lay population who believe that it's a rare disorder. Um, prevalence is estimated somewhere between one in 200 to one in 500 individuals, if we include those that are genotype positive, but not yet phenotype positive. Okay. And so it's not uncommon. Um, and uh, in an office setting, hearing a murmur, hearing symptoms that might at least be within the universe of symptoms for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, like dyspnea exertion, syncopal episodes, chest discomfort, should at least uh, prompt some consideration of the possibility and the characteristic murmur doesn't even have to be present but a systolic murmur that accentuates with standing or valsalva maneuver should be a strong impetus to be looking carefully with an echocardiogram which is the mainstay of the diagnosis just along those lines i'm curious how do you know how common that exam finding is the the change in the murmur with sitting to uh, from standing to sitting or with or with squatting you know I can't tell you how common it is. I would say that it is, although it's characteristic like many things, you know, the, the finding that specific murmur and waiting for that is probably um, neglecting many people who might have a murmur that doesn't necessarily have those characteristics or the, the uh, large proportion of individuals who may not, in fact, have much murmur uh, and yet still have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So... There are patients without obstruction, uh, left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, mm -hmm. who have no murmur and yet still have uh, bona fide phenotypic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. So the murmur is just one aspect of, of a clue towards evaluating the patient and looking for it. Um, sensitivity to the diagnosis, I think, has to, has to go well beyond just hearing a murmur. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, kind of circling back, as you mentioned, it's a very common disease and a very common genetic disease. I think the prevalence of that gene is like one in 500 or so. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's inherited autosomal dominant, correct? It's autosomal dominant. Um, it's, it's a fairly complex genetics uh, from a cardiologist's perspective in that uh, there's incomplete penetrance. Um, 
if we look for the gene, it's not as if we can detect it in every individual who has phenotypic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, 30 to 50% of individuals with a frank diagnosis established well by imaging studies uh, will turn out to, to not necessarily have a genetic marker that has, is identifiable. Um, but, uh, you know, this prevalence recently reassessed with considerations about genotype positive, phenotype negative individuals really has landed in the range more like 1 in 200 to 300 than 1 in 500. Okay. So it is, it's even more common than we thought before. Um, and I, I think that rings true that, that there are many individuals who don't necessarily have phenotypic expression um, and many individuals who are asymptomatic and haven't been diagnosed who um, nevertheless have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and so I, I think we need to be a little more sensitive to that as a possible diagnosis. Uh, my own experience, I I'll not uncommonly see individuals referred to the cardiac cath lab for chest pain syndromes where no consideration has been made of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in that setting, if we're simply looking at the coronaries and neglecting the myocardium um, or the possibility that there's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, we're sending the patient out with a, a diagnosis of non-cardiac chest pain sometimes because their coronaries are clean mm -hmm. when, in fact, we've missed the, the true etiology when it's something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Gotcha. And that's a good point because the cardiac cath, that's an insensitive marker to looking at these, uh, the phenotype for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's true. There are some clues there, you know, for the cardiology community and especially our fellows here when we see, for instance, septal milking, which is a sign of, that's characteristic of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy if it's present. Um, you know, there are some clues on the angiogram, even of the, just the coronary angiogram, that could be helpful. But, um, you know, it, we, we should be considering it in many symptomatic individuals, even though those symptoms are probably more commonly related to other conditions, um, especially when a test like a coronary angiogram is negative. Uh, we have to consider hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I, I, I would say another common presentation to me in the office is a consultation where an individual has had two or three cardiac caths. Um, they've had a chest pain syndrome for years. Uh, it's a recent echo that finally established, or MRI scan that finally established the diagnosis when they've been symptomatic for years. Uh, and we've been essentially barking up the wrong tree and looking for, you know, a coronary etiology for their symptoms. Gotcha. Okay. <clears throat> now back to the penetrance. So you'd mentioned that a lot of people can... It can be genotype positive yet phenotype negative. Do we know what influences the phenotypic expression? No, and it, we don't. It's a bit of a mystery, and I think it's one of the bigger mysteries in the in the advances we've had in the last twenty five years or so in the genetics, understanding the genetics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That there's wide phenotypic variability even in within families that carry the same uh, genetic abnormality, um, which is not only surprising, but uh, somewhat counterintuitive. So um, within a single family that carries the same um, pathogenic mutation for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there can be different phenotypic expressions from one individual who carries the gene to another, which just highlights the complexity of the genetic expression of this disease and so there's a strong belief there are additional modifier genetic influences, 
whether it's genetic or epigenetic influences that are modifying the expression of that pathogenic mutation. Um, but our understanding of that is, is, is in its infancy. Um, and in fact, it's still a mystery as to why one individual will have a very different phenotypic manifestation or, or not, not show signs of, of the disease. So why is there incomplete penetrance? Well, one might think there should be an, an, another influence, either ge genetic or epigenetic, that's masking or, or uh, preventing the expression of that pathogenic mutation. But we don't yet have a clue as to what that is. And there's a lot of active research going on, but it's very challenging research in a phenotypically variable illness um, because there is a wide spe spectrum of disease manifestations of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, various locations of the maximal hypertrophy, varying degrees of, of outflow tract obstruction, and varying symptomatic manifestations. And so uh, being a very variable illness makes it challenging to try to hone down on what the particular influences are on gene expression. Mm -hmm. That kind of is a segue when you're talking about the variable characteristics. It raises a question about whether you can have uh, a less than diagnostic thickness of the myocardium with still obstruction of the outflow tract, and is that still diagnostic? Maybe what are some of the principles that are going through your mind when you're looking at someone's looking at someone's clinical profile, their echocardiogram, to make that diagnosis? And what are the variables that then you're like, well, we can fudge a little bit on here, but these characteristics are really the most important to diagnose it. Uh, that's a good question, and fudge is not a word I like to use when we're talking about diagnosing uh -huh. something that's important. So, yeah. um, but there are challenges, and many of the challenges are are quite clinically significant, especially when we're dealing like pop, like populations of elite athletes where there are other reasons to consider myocardial hypertrophy in the phenotype um, and trying to differentiate individuals who have a benign form or, a, or an adaptive form of hypertrophy due to um, elite training versus an individual who has bona fide hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's still a conundrum. Um, for many young individuals who are competitive athletes. Um, but if you, if you take it at its fundamental, the definition of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy requires um, hypertrophy and to a degree, myocardial hypertrophy to a degree that exceeds certain standards um, in the absence of other secondary causes, uh, the most common likely being hypertension. Um, and so we're talking about wall thickness that's diagnostic uh, would be 15 millimeters of mercury and typically asymmetric, not concentric hypertrophy, but asymmetric hypertrophy that exceeds 15 millimeters of mercury is sort of at the root of the diagnosis for most individuals. There's a gray zone between 13 millimeters and 15 millimeters of mercury. So there is some gray zone, especially in young individuals uh, where the you know, those benchmarks of 15 millimeters apply to adults. Mm -hmm. So a teenager or, or a child, it's harder to to know those standards and how exactly they apply um, poses some additional challenge. So we sometimes look at the Z-score, you know, the difference compared to the expect, expected wall thickness. But bottom line is wall thickness is, is the fundamental feature. Um, 
and the pattern of that wall thickness. So asymmetry being very important. The presence of outflow tract obstruction is an additional marker, but not necessarily diagnostic, because in fact there are individuals who are not, who do not have outflow tract obstruction and yet have bona fide um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the mechanism, the, the, the typical mechanism being a combination of systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve and mm-hmm. excessive septal thickening at the basal interventricular septum. It's not present in all individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Some individuals have more apical hypertrophy. That's, that's currently termed the apical variant of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And there have been descriptions of individuals with lateral wall hypertrophy only. So, so I think the fundamental characteristic one should be sort of sensitive to is asymmetric hypertrophy of the ventricle with a maximal wall thickness that exceeds 15 millimeters. Um, but even concentric LVH at times should be investigated for the possibility that it represents hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Gotcha. Okay. And another question about diagnosis and suspicion. How common is it that you see someone without a known family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy coming in for that diagnosis? That's very common. In fact, I think the majority of individuals that I see in the office have no family history before their diagnosis is made. And very often their diagnosis is made incidentally on an echocardiogram done for other reasons or to evaluate symptoms. Um, So uh, although... Uh, we believe that it is most commonly a familial disease. Um, either, either no one else in the family has yet been diagnosed, which is not uncommon, because sometimes screening family members will then pick up other members who do have the diagnosis, mm-hmm. or there's no trackable or identifiable family members who also have the disease. So there are sporadic cases. Um, I think for the from the clinical practical clinical perspective, we should always consider that it is uh, more likely a familial disease to prompt the screening of family members and not neglect that screening. Um, You know, this is a disorder that has um, important clinical implications even for the asymptomatic individual who's otherwise healthy. So if we establish the phenotypic diagnosis, we need to be looking very carefully for risk factors for premature sudden cardiac death. Um, and given that risk amongst this population, although um, as far as the population is concerned, the vast majority do not have an excessive risk of sudden cardiac death by, identi- uh, by identifiable risk markers mm-hmm. because there is a small percentage who do, uh, preventing possibility of unexpected sudden death is one of the most important aspects of screening. And so when we identify an individual, their family member should be screened as if um, they, there's a possibility it's a familial form uh, until proven otherwise. Um, but, but there are a large number of individuals who are the only member of their family thus far identified. Mm-hmm. The challenge there being, of course, you know, other family members may develop it at a later time in life, or as you've alluded to earlier, there's enough incomplete penetrance that someone may be a carrier but not necessarily show the phenotypic manifestations. Mm-hmm. Are there other clues on like family history that that you've seen come up in your practice that like seem to be common trends like you know, yeah, maybe I, mention oh yeah we have family history yeah like I've had a couple uncles who have suddenly dropped dead and we don't really know why or well you bring up a, yeah another very common 
at least in my practice, and I think, you know, it's not uncommon anywhere, is that other family members may have died suddenly, but but the family was told, or um, a death certificate is is um, created that says that it was due to coronary heart disease or myocardial infarction. Um, you know, the most common thing I see is a family member who maybe even a parent died in their uh, at, at a relatively young age, perhaps in their 40s and 50s, suddenly, and the family was told they died of a massive heart attack without an autopsy. I'd say that's as common as as no family history, in fact. Um, and it's disturbing because no one has been clued into the possibility that there was an underlying familial substrate for sudden death in that, that person's family. And sometimes... They're even describing that multiple family members, as you've just alluded to, uncle died suddenly, um, parent, grandparent died suddenly, and yet the family is not aware that the potential that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a diagnosis uh, may be present. So it just highlights that, you know, we have to be careful about the family history of sudden death, that it may have been misattributed to other things. But likewise, there's a there's not a small number of individuals who have just no family history of of any prior cardiac disease or cardiac illness, uh, and they're showing up as the first identified member of the family who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy being typically expressed. Gotcha. And then, does the prevalence or the expression of this vary across race? Uh, not in a way so far identifiable. Um, race has not. Uh, it turned out to be, you know, a differentiating factor for the, for the, this particular disease. It, it happens in any race. It happens um, in any ethnic uh, population. So um, there's no particular stratification there that I can say that we have enough data to, to give you an answer that says, oh, it's more common in this particular um, population. Gotcha. Okay. Now. I think we've alluded to this before, but one of my questions about how hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can cause sudden cardiac death, and then you started mentioning about how um, in regards to elite athletes and, and differentiating between those two. However, you know, there are cases we hear about where young elite athlete then dies suddenly from mm -hmm. hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And this is maybe a bit of a side topic, but about screening for these populations who are a bit higher risk, you know, engaging in strenuous exercise on a daily basis, putting them at higher risk for a fatal event from, from that disease. Is there a role for screening or do we have uh, any data to suggest whether screening with even like an ECG or an echocardiogram in those populations is useful or not? Yeah, you bring up a topic that's very controversial right now. Um, this week's New England Journal of Medicine has an article about screening soccer players, elite soccer players in Great Britain. Yeah, I just and read I that last yeah, night. It's yeah. fascinating. Um, uh, let me let me say a couple of things that I think are relevant as we're discussing this particular topic. First of all, any um, family with a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, the the young individuals in that family. Uh, should be screened on a yearly basis before they participate in sports at high school, for instance. Um, and anyone, uh, when we're talking about screening for that population, it would require a yearly echocardiogram. If we're talking about the general population of young athletes, 
uh, the the AHA and ACC recommendations, um, and uh, in fact, with a, a white paper that looked very carefully at this a few years ago, coming out of a task force that looked at it, uh, they do not recommend routine screening with echocardiograms or even electrocardiograms. Um, simply the, the problem of finding the needle in the haystack is kind of the, the difficulty there. Um, but they do recommend pre-participation examination by a physician, um, which is required, in fact, in most states by uh, for high school athletes before they'll participate um, uh, in the next year's sports, that they have a pre-participation screening exam. And that includes taking a history and asking them questions about whether they've had symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, syncope, very important symptoms that could be the first sign of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, for instance, but mm -hmm. looking for any uh, condition that might propose or, or, or promote a risk of sudden death from competitive sports. Um, and, uh, and a physical examination that obviously includes examining the heart and looking for a heart murmur. And from that screening exam, identifying individuals that may go on to need an electrocardiogram or echocardiogram from the, the sort of fundamental screening exam. That's what's recommended in the U.S. for pre-participation pre screening, but not, an, not a routine EKG, which is done in Italy and has been, uh, in some publications of their experience, associated with a reduced risk of sudden death. That's been controversial enough that, that extrapolating that data to the U.S. population has not felt to be compelling yet to this point. Uh, but as you saw in that article in Great Britain, at least for the elite soccer players who are going on to professional careers, at around age 16, they do undergo a fairly rigorous screening examination with an echocardiogram and, ele and electrocardiogram, mm -hmm. the results of which, this is very fresh data, um, it's, it's in the interpretation of that those outcomes we have to look at very carefully before we can extrapolate it to experience here in the U.S. Yeah. But it is, as as you read that article, it's very interesting that there were, unfortunately, some sudden deaths amongst those young athletes. The rate was very, very low. Mm -hmm. um, eight out of 11,000 or more than 11,000 yeah. over a period of several years. Um, and amongst those that died suddenly... Um, Unfortunately, there were several where the pre-participation screening evaluation they had didn't identify the condition. Yeah. So um, just poses the conundrum of how difficult it is to screen the many athletes that we have and young, young kids who are participating in high school sports here in the U.S. to identify those that are at increased risk and try to prevent that very rare but tragic event of a young person dying suddenly. We need more data on how to go ahead and go ahead and do that in a cost-effective way and and even in a, a clinically effective way. Yeah, uh, it should. We should say, for the sake of you know this podcast, that if a young person is identified to have phenotypic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mm -hmm. on a pre-participation pre screening, the recommendation is that they should be. Um, prevented from participating in competitive sports, that that would be proscribed for them. Um, but it, 
it does pose that dilemma that there are young individuals who are elite athletes um, who might have a borderline uh, evaluation, and it's very challenging to be certain that they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, to evaluate whether or not medically they should be disqualified from participation. Um, and there are some cardiologists in the country who have argued that not all athletes with um, some phenotypic abnormality, cardiac abnormality of concern, should be prevented from participating in sports. But it's a controversial enough topic that I think it's probably more than we can talk about today. Yeah. Um, but uh, one that will probably affect policy and physicians' behavior in the future with respect to interacting with young elite athletes. Mm -hmm. What are the risk factors uh, for sudden cardiac death in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What are the things that you look for? Yeah, we're fortunate that we have a list, short list, that helps identify those individuals. And some more recent data in the last several years, some at least observational studies that suggest the vast majority of individuals do not have an increased risk of sudden death. But the risk factors, uh, the short list is uh, a family history of sudden cardiac death, premature sudden cardiac death, again, with the challenges of always knowing that the, in a first-degree family member, challenges of always knowing, you know, how was that really sudden arrhythmic death, mm -hmm. um, uh, notwithstanding. Uh, wall thickness, maximal wall thickness greater than 30 millimeters is considered a, a, an additional strong risk factor, uh, but the reality there is it's a continuum. So uh, should you not be concerned at 29 millimeters, but more concerned at 31 millimeters, that's a judgment call to some degree, as all these risk factors have some judgment associated with them. Um, the third is uh, syncopal episodes, especially if they're recent, multiple, and unexplained by other etiologies of syncope. Um, a, a drop in blood pressure with exercise on an exercise treadmill test is another marker. Um, and then uh, episodes of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia seen on a Holter monitor, um, especially if they're multiple, uh, that is another factor, although that one may be somewhat mitigated. And um, uh, so with the question of how many risk factors do you need to have before one intervenes, and the intervention being a primary prevention defibrillator, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a very important question. Uh, that's also controversial. Um, the European recommendations are that one should calculate a risk, and when the risk is greater than the range of 6% uh, of risk of sudden death based on risk prediction on, a, on an, an equation that like, uses these risk, incorporates like 6 these risk factors. 6% for years? Um, you know, that's considered a high enough risk to justify a defibrillator, but some, but in the U.S. population that has been studied and some retrospective observational studies are pretty powerful in this regard. Even one risk factor, um, or, or let's put it this way, the, vet, the majority of individuals who have an event um, have just one risk factor. So uh, that takes away necessarily the onus to be relying on a calculation of percentage risk. Um, but we should look, be looking very carefully. This is one of the most important aspects of identifying individuals who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at an early point 
is to adequately risk stratify whether they have an increased risk of sudden death um, and shown quite well in the retrospective series, a primary prevention defibrillator can save lives in that circumstance. So one of those cardinal risk factors, or if it's borderline or there are questions, some supportive evidence now, um, some work done by Marty Marin, one of our former residents actually, who is a, you know, a leading expert on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at Tufts. Um, has, he's looked at some very well-described um, information about late gadolinium enhancement on an MRI scan. And when there is a large degree of it, more than somewhere in the range of 15% late gadolinium enhancement in the myocardium, uh, that's another supportive factor that helps risk stratify individuals and might support a, defi a defibrillator even though the other risk factors may be considered borderline. So, so we have some some information in the last 20 years from these risk factors that has defined the population better that have an increased risk of sudden death. Um, when it comes to the competitive sports question, one should realize that we don't restrict those individuals only who have those risk factors. Any diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy prompts a recommendation to avoid strenuous exertion mm -hmm. um, and, and not only solely defined by those risk markers. So it is just one of those gaps in our knowledge. Is everyone at risk? Um, well, there is a belief that certainly high-level strenuous exertion does promote the potential for arrhythmic sudden death independent of these risk factors that we're talking about that, that are more markers for uh, whether or not a defibrillator is an important preventative strategy. Sure. So those individuals who are at higher risk, but still even just the diagnosis itself should preclude you from those competitive sports. Right. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's part of our job to be counseling individuals to perhaps modify their lifestyle if they are um, extreme athletes even adults, master athletes, uh, need to be careful about the, the vigor of their exercise with a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. um, again, count, countered by the, the belief and recommendation that, that regular aerobic moderate exercise is still worthwhile for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and some recent data that suggests, you know, that is... That's absolutely true, that patients will have better exercise capacity, better overall health if they continue to exercise, but, the, but strenuous exertion and competitive sports are proscribed. Okay. So, say we've met somebody, make the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When do you initiate treatment, and what do you start treatment with? Like, is that the asymptomatic stage you start them on? You wait till they start having symptoms? to start with? Good question. And, and uh, let me put in a plug for the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center because I don't think any of these questions are simple ones. Uh -huh. And one thing I believe very strongly in, in the way we've created our own center here, um, is that any individual at any stage needs a very comprehensive evaluation to determine what, if any, treatments are needed. And when we're talking about treatments, we're not just talking about medical therapy or decisions on invasive interventions, we are talking about that question and determining the need for a primary 
prevention defibrillator for some of the populations. So mm -hmm. because these questions are not simple, even at the initial diagnosis, um, there is some value in, in a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center that has this comprehensive approach to management. But mm -hmm. um, when, we, when it comes to medical interventions, for instance, uh, medical therapy being the first line of treatment for symptomatic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it really is um, symptoms that prompt that kind of, of decision. Okay. Uh, it is not recommended and typically not felt to, to you know, uh, alter the disease process necessarily to initiate medical therapy prophylactically for the asymptomatic individual who, who has the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, medical therapy probably should be reserved for symptomatic individuals, but and the most common symptoms being symptoms of, of congestive heart failure, shortness of breath, um, although uh, angina pectoris, chest discomfort is another common uh, complaint. Mm -hmm. uh, the first-line treatment typically would be a consideration for a beta blocker. Um, the most common beta blocker employed is probably metoprolol, um, although that's, you know, which beta blocker has probably not been adequately studied to say there's any difference to suggest it's not a class action effect. Okay. Um, but so beta blockers are the first line uh, uh, choice for most symptomatic individuals. Um, I would say, you know, it's not uncommon that we are not using therapeutic doses for many individuals that I see. So even achieving a therapeutic level of beta blocker is probably important if we're trying to you know, um, mitigate symptoms for these individuals. Uh, but there are many individuals who even with, with adequate beta blockade simply don't have enough responsiveness or have, have limiting side effects from the beta blocker. Mm -hmm. For those individuals, um, we'd probably say the second line agent is a calcium channel blocker and the most common one being rapamil. Mm -hmm. Um, we didn't discuss it earlier, but one of the very fundamental aspects of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that the left ventricle is hyperdynamic. The ejection fraction is typically higher than a normal ejection fraction. Um, it's likely that at a very fundamental level, the interaction between myosin and actin um, is overly vigorous for uh, the myocardium for somebody with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. um, so these agents, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, we're probably getting some benefit out of the negative inotropy that they also have mm -hmm. as one of their characteristics. Um, and so verapamil being the most negatively inotropic calcium channel blocker is probably the agent of choice if a patient fails um, to respond to beta blockers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the third line agent, and I would use it as a third line agent, although that might be considered uh, too conservative, is disopyramide. Um, which is a type 1A antiarrhythmic agent in its original iteration, but um, a powerful negative inotrope as well. And there are individuals, and this has been described in some observational series that I think are very worthwhile taking a look at if one considers using disopyramide, uh, that a, a significant proportion of a population that has perhaps failed to respond to beta blockers and or calcium channel blockers does have response to disopyramide. Mm -hmm. But it has to be used carefully. It is an agent that should be started during a, a hospital stay so that um, and one can examine whether or not there's change in the QT interval that 
that um, uh, portends some proarrhythmic risk for those individuals. Mm-hmm. And in the end, unfortunately, a significant proportion of individuals don't really tolerate disapyramide. It has a has a side effect profile that is difficult for many patients, and so it's a it's not an easy medication to use. It's probably is that third line um, agent for um, symptomatic individuals. Um, uh, there is just so that we sort of bring it up and don't forget to talk about it today. There is a new medication on the horizon, uh, and here at the Hokum Center at WashU, we're about to, uh, we started one and about to start a second trial of this new medication. Uh, it's called Mavicampton, just to be aware of it. It is investigational. Mm-hmm. It's a designer agent, which makes me quite excited about, you know, the fact that there's some precision medicine, quote-unquote, behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it interacts with this excessive interaction between myosin and actin, um, uh, we've learned a lot about the physiology of the myocardium in ways that, to me, are very exciting so that we understand it a little better than we did even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But in the normal circumstance, you know, there's a, a conformational state of myosin where it's so-called in its super-relaxed state. So some of the myosin heads are folded over and, um, and not accessible to binding with actin. Mm-hmm. In the normal circumstance, they're sort of held in reserve, so to speak. Um, and that state seems to be affected by some of the mutations on the myosin head or by the lack of breaking that happens from myosin binding protein. And so um, there's an excessive interaction between myosin and actin, Mm -hmm. so to speak, which affects both the strength of the contraction, so it is hyperdynamic phenotypically when we look at it by imaging studies, but it also affects the relaxation phase, um, and those are both fundamental components of the abnormal physiology of hokum. Uh, so this new agent that um, binds to and sort of um, un, uh, unhooks the the state of myosin from the from its active binding and mm-hmm. restores some of that super relaxed state to the molecule um, seems to affect both the systolic hypercontractility and the diastolic dysfunction that are fundamental to hokum. So it's a very exciting agent, let's put it that way. It really has only been studied in a small number of individuals so far, but we've embarked, um, you know, with an FDA-approved clinical trial that's multi-center that's going on here and at many centers around the country and soon around the world uh, to assess its effect on physiology using echocardiography and MRI to evaluate the patients and its effect on symptoms, and that's going to be one of the and and physical functioning uh, by exercise testing. That's going to be a very, I think, important addition uh, to our armamentarium for treating these individuals. If it turns out to be safe and effective, as any clinical trial needs to prove first, um, but um, it's our first agent to really look at prospectively, perhaps that attacks one of the. You know, the, the sweet spots of the abnormalities for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, if I can put it that way. So we're very excited about that. And, and individuals who are symptomatic with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can volunteer to participate in the study here or at, at many of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy centers around the country. Very cool. Then um, 
back on the beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, they treat symptoms. Do they any have impact on mortality as well? So none of them have been proven to impact mortality. Um, uh, you know, the encouraging information that we've had recently that says that the mortality rate with modern interventions that include defibrillator implantation has dropped substantially over the last 25 years to uh, match the general population. Um, and I, that's one has to take any such observational data a little bit with a grain of salt because it's selected populations mm -hmm. uh, that have been examined. But it is encouraging that I think we've we've changed the history of the illness to some degree by intervening early. And um, but but if you were to ask the specific question, you know, do, does beta blocker therapy or verapamil or disapiramide reduce you know mortality or increase longevity? No such data exists. Um, when we get to, you know, if you want to talk about the invasive therapies, there's some, even some That's controversy about that. Um, but when one talks about myectomy for individuals with severe obstruction mm -hmm. or alcohol septal ablation for the same population, mm -hmm. patients, again, who are symptomatic and refractory to medical therapy may qualify for those procedures. Uh, the the level of evidence is not great that we can say that they extend longevity. Um, in a retrospective analysis, very carefully done, of individuals with severe obstruction who underwent a myectomy, mm -hmm. compared to individuals who had severe obstruction but did not, mm -hmm. the mortality was lower. Um, but one has to realize that that's a select population, yeah. and the biases... Um, may be large in that comparison to conclude that, you know, reducing gradients by intervening on septal thickness, whether that actually reduces mortality. There are many of us who, um, we certainly see great symptomatic benefit by those interventions uh -huh. and expect that it's not unlikely that changing the physiology of the ventricle that way should impact long-term prognosis. Uh, but I would never promise to a patient that they'll live longer based on one of those interventions with the level of evidence we currently have. Yeah. And I think you highlighted this already. I did want to go into those invasive procedures. Mm -hmm. But who do you consider to refer towards a either surgical myomectomy or an alcohol septal ablation? And then how do you decide? I'm sure the decision is probably first, yes, we should try to relieve some of this obstruction. And then the next decision is, which way do we go, surgical versus uh, alcohol ablation? Yeah, and, and it shouldn't be neglected that there are many individuals quite symptomatic at initial presentation who, whose symptoms may be well controlled with medical therapy. That, that is um, still the first line for treatment and very successful for many individuals. But the proportion of individuals who remain symptomatic and we generally say severely symptomatic, meaning at least class three symptoms, um, who have the proper anatomy and physiology to consider it. And what am I referring to there? Well, um, asymmetric septal hypertrophy as their fundamental um, manifestation of the hypertrophy from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and outflow tract obstruction uh, which is typically dynamic 
uh, meaning it's due to the systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve interacting with that septum. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, uh, That cause what's considered a quote-unquote severe degree of outflow tract obstruction. Um, And that means either at rest or with provocation, and the most physiologic provocation being an exercise stress test, uh, a systolic gradient across the outflow tract, typically measured by the Doppler velocity of at least 50 millimeters of mercury or greater. Um, And that qualifies as severe outflow tract obstruction. With fulfilling all of those criteria, that may be an individual, if refractory to medical therapy, who can benefit from septal reduction therapy as a general term for these two interventions. Uh-huh. Um, now that that it's very important, and in fact, I think one of the one of the important roles of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center is to try to adjudicate what is the optimal treatment for each individual. Comparing septal myectomy, a surgical approach that requires a sternotomy, um, uh, a pump run, and um, uh, an experienced surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an operation that should be done in a center of excellence where a surgeon specializes in septal myectomy. Um, but whether that approach versus a what might be considered minimally invasive approach uh, by catheters, uh, by alcohol septal ablation, uh, which of those should be recommended uh, quite um, uh, individual so to speak, with respect to preferences and features. And so it's not a simple algorithm to discuss. Uh, I should reflect that the guidelines from 2011, Mm -hmm. um, I think which are very fair in this regard, suggest that based on the fact that septal myectomy has been in clinical use since the 1960s, so it has a very long track record, Mm -hmm. uh, that um, the surgical approach has improved over the last 25 years to the degree that uh, the risk of the surgery mortality rate is relatively low for isolated septal myectomy, Um, that it is the quote-unquote gold standard for septal reduction therapy for for appropriate individuals. And when I see individuals, there are other factors that can affect whether or not we would recommend surgery as a primary approach. is the individual young, and therefore the data that's, that we've had an operation available for you know, more than 40 years uh, can affect one's um, recommendation to a young individual that they, perhaps we should be preferring surgery for younger patients. Uh, the thickness of the septum, a very thick septum, easier to thin by surgery than it is by alcohol ablation. Mm-hmm. And then comorbid conditions. If a patient has, for instance, atrial fibrillation as a as a additional condition, the ability to do maze surgery, which in our institution, Dr. Ralph Damiano does our septal myectomies, um, he'll also combine that when feasible with a maze operation to reduce the likelihood of recurrent atrial fibrillation, which, uh, by the way, is a very poorly tolerated arrhythmia for individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, these are reasons to uh, perhaps prefer and recommend septal myectomy for the individual. Um, When individuals have a higher risk from surgery, um, and that's not uncommon, that we may see older patients or patients with comorbidities, uh, COPD or other comorbidities that increase the risk of of open-heart surgery, 
then we'd prefer and recommend, you know, transcatheter alcohol septal ablation as a as a technique for septal reduction therapy for those individuals. And then certainly, I believe very strongly in shared decision making for this population. So generally, I have a long discussion about the differences between the procedures, the potential risks versus benefits, so to speak, um, and the patient's preference is very important in which of these procedures may be chosen. Um, both procedures are very successful, probably in excess of 90% effectiveness in reducing symptoms um, with low morbidity and mortality rates on the order of 1% to 2% for both procedures for the average individual. Um, and so patient preference is an important component as long as they've been adequately informed about, about both procedures. I believe that very strongly. Very good. There, unfortunately, I'm running out of time. There's a <laughs> lot more that I would want to talk to you about, though. Sure. But uh, I really appreciate you coming by. Any last words or thoughts on this, this topic? Great. No, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to get a chance to discuss hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I do think we need more awareness, both in the lay community and in, in physicians' offices, to be looking for it. And uh, we're eager, you know, to see more patients here at the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center, so that we can have this, you know, comprehensive approach to their, to them, to their families, and to you know, keeping them healthy and keeping them happy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Great. Yeah. Again, thank you for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I've used for my theme music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.